Anong balita? Mahamo ba kita? Hello? I was once, uh, I had a contract at Wake Med Hospital, and I was working on the night shift, so I would see 50% of Americans and Filipinos, and every time I would see them, I would use my Tagalog on them. Half of them had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I think I was saying, Anong uh, balitam, right? That means like, what's the news? And they were like, mm, a little different. All right, so just some quick announcements. Does anyone here have a birthday or an anniversary? And I have the, uh, the list like Santa Claus would, so you can't, you can't lie to me. So who here, raise your hand if you have a birthday or an anniversary. I can barely even remember what day it is today, so. I got here, let's see, I got here Joshua on the 10th, Mer Meredith, Mardith, Meredith. Do they ever pronounce it Mer Meredith? Right? Meredith, I mean. Madith. Uh, she, you, we have her on the 10th, and we have Bing on the 13th. So we're going to pray for you guys um, in just a minute. Um, so you're going to have to come up here if you're here. Are they here? Do you see them all? And then they got to come up here. And then in addition to that, we have a wedding on the 15th. Pretty exciting. Right? Bing Pebbles, Cables, and um, Arcadio. Arcadio? Arcadio? Arcadio. You like how I had a little Spanish like Arcadio? Yeah. Well, actually, we're going to... Who, who, whose name did I, did I mention that's here? Which means you two have to come up so I can pray for you. And anyone else? Anyone else here? Jackson? Come on. So I can pray for you guys? Come on. Someone's... Who? December 14th? Well, if you're up here, come on, let's go. If you don't come up here in the next 30 seconds, I'm going to preach an hour extra. Arcadio, you got to join us too. I don't bite. My, my daughter does, but I don't bite. All right, if we can uh, close our eyes and bow our heads. I always get nervous that I'm going to say, if you can bow your eyes and close your heads. But <laughs> luckily. Uh, Father, we, we just thank you, Lord, uh, for the celebration of life in the various forms that it comes to us, Lord, whether it be in, uh, in, what, in what Christmas is pointing towards, which is uh, the birth of Jesus and the life that it foreshadows, or, Father, the life that's created um, in the one flesh union of marriage, or in the accomplishment of another year of celebration in our birthdays, Lord. We give you thanks for these accomplishments, but, but uh, mostly, Lord, for the people behind them and for how they have influenced the lives of those who are connected for them. So, Father, we pray for them that you may bless them in the days to come. Amen. So with that, if I could have the ushers come up, uh, and you guys can take a seat, we will do the offering, another opportunity here, uh, to worship the Lord with, with, your, um, with what he's, in essence, blessed you with. Um, especially around this time of year, you know, this church is uh, not paying for people's Porsches or, uh, you know, their jet planes or fancy rings or anything like that. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that we have as the goal to bring our money together, our resources, our talents, for the propagation of the gospel, uh, both in the word proclaimed, but in the word seen as we minister to the community. So the ushers will go around and collect, but before that, I will just make a quick prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for what you have gifted us with. Uh, this is a time, Lord, of gifting. So we pray, Lord, that um, you may bless this church and that you may do it, Lord, um, not simply by you know, tossing upon it piles of money, Lord, but that you may truly bless this church by moving people to understand the blessing uh, that it is to give, to give to their neighbors, uh, to give financially, to give of their selves, to give lovingly to their families, Lord. In your name we pray and we give you thanks. Amen.
go to the first slide. The first, the first slide. All right, go to the next one. So today's sermon. Oh, actually, yeah, it is cut off. Let me just, let me just do something real quick. Yeah, I know. Where are we gonna? I don't know why, but you always have to get out of it. All right. So today's sermon is called. Oh yes, I have to pray for the offering. Thank you very much. Um, we can pray all day. All right. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for for the gifts that you have given us, Lord, for these uh, these gifts that have been offered to the church. We pray, Lord, that you may. Uh, that you may pour your oil of holiness upon them, Lord, and that you may direct them where they need to go, Lord, uh, the various ministries of this church or the needs of this church, Father. We pray that it may multiply so that we may continue to proclaim your name. Amen. So with that, today's sermon is called Why Scripture? That kind of looks familiar, doesn't it? Right? Why Scripture? It patterns, provides, produces, promotes, and profits life. That is the longest title I've ever had for a sermon but it may sound a little familiar, right? Does it sound familiar? Maybe a little bit, right? Remember what the, the past sermon series I preached, what was it? Why who? Why pastors, right? And, and I mean, this is actually kind of like a play to that because the sermon series was why pastors, it patterns, you know, the New Testament church, it provides, it produces, it promotes, and it was basically four different weeks where we looked at the office of, of the pastor, Right? And, and, how, and, and what the Bible has to tell us about the, plur, the plurality of pastors, elders, overseers. So, we, does anyone remember what our main text was? What was the main letter that, that I taught from in the New Testament? Remember? You could be wrong. I won't send you to purgatory. First, you said what? First Timothy? Yes. Well, yes, one of the Timothys, right? First Timothy. So I mainly taught out of First, first Timothy, right? Which, which has that section that describes the qualifications. And today I'm going to, I said, you know what? I might as well give them both Timothys. That way they can just have Timothy, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach today from Second Timothy. Now, I'm, I'm sure that you guys are all aware that Christmas season has started, right? I mean, how do you know? Well, you know because after Thanksgiving, people were standing in line to buy electronic products. I mean, really, that's how, like, that's how you know when, when Christmas season has started is, you know, you get the Black Friday sales. Actually, I'm sorry, Black Thursday. I may want to call it now. Black Thursday sales, etc. Then you get to hear the reports, basically, of people um, fighting and stuff over products. What was that? Getting, getting what? Tasered, yeah. Getting tasered or Miami getting runned over. I have some, you know, hor- horror experiences at a Target, you know, being stuck for like 30 minutes in an electronic section. Um, but you also begin to hear the music play on the radio. You begin to see all the different Christmas movies play. And, and my, wife, well, my wife saw an interesting one when she was driving the other day. She saw kind of like a little sign on the side of the road. Like, you know when people have birthdays, they have those signs that point? Right? Well, this one said, you know, like, birthday over here. This one said... Happy birthday, Jesus, and it had balloons, and it was pointing, and, and she thinks it was like pointing to a, to a church. A little corny, right? A little corny. But another sign, hey, you know, the Christmas season is here. So it's, it's pretty great. You know, I always tell you guys how the Spirit does his thing in sermon prep, but how I really like sometimes how the Spirit brings together uh, the musical choice with the worship. And you can go to, the, you can go to the, back, the slide before that, and you can just stay on that slide for a minute. Yeah, the one before that? One more, yeah, stay on that one right there. So, so um, yeah, the, the song selection, I, I had no say on it, but the song selection is pretty, is pretty accurate with what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you didn't know, right, because, because we're Baptists, we really don't do these type of things, unfortunately, but we are in the Advent season. You guys know that, right? We are in the second, I believe the second week of Advent. Advent started last week. I was going to wear purple, but I didn't own anything that was purple in my uh, my closet, so the second color for Advent was blue, so I tried to dress for the occasion. But in Advent, you usually have, you know, the larger uh, majority of the church celebrating Advent, which is basically the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. 
And each, each Sunday, they celebrate something different, right? So my sermon today is going gonna, is gonna, gonna to appeal to this Advent, se- this Advent sense, but it's going to tie in some of the stuff that I taught before. So it's going to kind of act like a bridge from the sermons I've preached in the past, specifically this, um, this sermon on, on why pastors, because I want to go into 2 Timothy. And then it's, and I don't know if you guys remember, this was a while back, but remember in 2011 I preached this sermon about love stories? Does anyone remember that? I preached a sermon about stories, because I love stories. And, and I preached about how the Bible is this beautiful romance, this true love story. Well, this topic of story... And what we preached on, the why pastors, I'm going to connect those to what was sung about Jesus, this, this Advent and Christmas, and what we're celebrating in preparation for a sermon I'll preach at the end of the month, which will be, you know, my Christmas sermon. And to make it a little more difficult, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to preach backwards, right? I'm not going to preach like this, but I'm going to preach, I'm going to preach the text backwards. And you're going to see why, why we do that so that we can get back to the songs that we sung to prepare us for this Advent season. So, our text today, the truth of our text is that we're going to learn that Scripture is an authoritative autobiography that patterns, provides, produces, promotes, and profits life. So, our text for today, and we're going to read it in the normal order first, If you have a Bible, please open it or turn it on to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, and and I have it here in three pieces, right? So we're going to read it together here. I'm going to read it for you guys. You guys can follow along in your Bible. You can follow along with me. We're going to read the three chunks, and then we're going to preach it backwards. So the first part, 2 Timothy. And these are always really hard, you know, to find in the Bible because they're like a couple pages long and like a book of 3,000 texts. So, you know... If I hear you doing the Baptist fan, don't worry about it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And now he starts here in chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul wrote 2 Timothy 3.16-17, in order to teach the church the authority and nature of Scripture, in order that its leaders and its members may be equipped against the false teaching of false teachers and instead be equipped for the practice and teaching of the good news and good work. Now, I'm going to just outline 2 Timothy very quickly because we're not going to preach through the whole text. We're just going to focus on that section that I read. But I still want to give you a picture of 2 Timothy especially since we taught 1 Timothy. And the main message of 1 Timothy, right? The main message of, of 1 Timothy is this problem of the false teachers, right? Paul is dealing, he's, a, he's over here in prison, and he's dealing in 1 Timothy. I'm, I'm gonna, when I talk about 1 Timothy, I'm going to stand over here. He's, when he's talking in 1 Timothy, he's talking about the false teachers, and he's going at these false teachers. And that's why he talks about the elders and their qualifications, that they're the ones who teach and they have to have this moral character. And the reason why is because he's concerned that false teaching leads to what? False practice. So the two go together and that's why throughout all of, of 1 Timothy he's concerned with these false teachers and he's providing himself and, and this, uh, this list of qualifications so that they can know what a right teacher looks like. So over here in 2 Timothy, 
a shorter letter, but he's still concerned about these false teachers. And what's really interesting about 2 Timothy is he's at the end of his life, and he's imprisoned. So he's in prison, he's miserable. I mean, at the very end of the letter, he's telling Timothy, hey, can you bring my cloak? Because I'm so cold here. Can you bring me my cloak so I can keep warm and my books? Like a good book nerd, right? Bring me my cloak and bring me my books. And he's writing at the end of his life. So you have to picture here, he's talking to young Timothy, who's a young guy, who's about to take over you know, this, this ministerial role because Paul knows that he's going to die. right? And before he passes on, he's going to tell him again the important message that he wants to tell them about false teachers. And that's where we're going to get into our, our text, right? which is around chapter 3. And, and up to chapter 3, he's talking about false teachers, he's talking about false teachers, and then we get into this section. So, as I mentioned, we're going to preach that text backwards. Okay, it's, it's a little weird, but I think, I think you'll see where this movement is trying to take us in terms of, of, um, of Christmas. So, three sections. Our first section, I called the charge and the myth. And this is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So, we're going to deal with chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then after that, we're going to deal with 16 and 17, and then after that, we're going to deal with 14 and 15. So, over here in chapter 4, how does it start? What's the first words that you're seeing in there? He what? In chapter 4, he charges him. He gives him a charge. What does it mean to give someone a charge? What does that mean when you give someone a charge? Or you give them your credit card so they can buy whatever they want on Christmas. No, absolutely not. When you give someone a charge, you're basically like giving them this command. You know, a command that's implying a direction. You're telling them somewhere to go. And this idea here of charge is all throughout 1 Timothy as well. There's a bunch of other passages in 1 Timothy where he's giving them a charge. So I'll just read one example from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, if you can flip down to the... Keep going. Okay, here. So, he gives him this charge, and he writes in verses 1 and 2, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now that kind of sounds familiar with the sermons I was preaching before about, about the elders. What's the elder's number one responsibility? What's, what's he supposed to be able to do? Teach. And he's talking here to Timothy, the same person he was talking to in that letter, and he's charging him to do what? He's charging him to teach. To, to teach what? The Word. What does that even mean, right? To teach the Word, right? I mean, Jesus, right? Jesus is the Word. We'll hold on to answering that question until later on. But he's telling him you have to preach the Word, and then he's using these words, which are familiar, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Remember, I, thought, I, I was talking about exhorting, right? To the pastor exhorts. He's teaching you guys, you know, exclaiming, um, you know, the Scripture here. But... Out of all those sermons I talked about, those four weeks on pastors, I talked a whole lot about teaching, but I really didn't talk about what they're supposed to teach, right? I, I talked about them teaching. I talked about what they're supposed to look like. I talked about that their teaching is supposed to model their practice, but I really didn't get to talk a lot about what are they teaching. You know, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, Dr. Seuss, right? I mean, what are they supposed to be teaching? We, it, it was kind of just assumed. And here we have word, but that word still doesn't satisfy our question. So we're going we're gonna to put that on the side. And we're going to answer that question later. Another thing that I just want to, I would point out is, he says here that, that that preaching of the word is done with complete patience and teaching. Again, that's our idea here of that you don't just teach at the pulpit, but that your entire life models that teaching. That's the idea of patience. And, and that patience imagery pulls up the qualifications in First, in first Timothy of, you know, slow to anger. I mean, I mean, what that pastor is supposed to look like. 
So what we see there is he gives him this charge, and this charge is to preach the word. All right? And now in verse 3, he's going to provide that charge. That's what, the, that's what a true teacher is supposed to look like. He provides that charge, the image of true teaching, and now he's going to talk about why that's so important. And that's where we get to verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, this is uh, the myth, right? Itchy ears. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. So, you know, I was camping at the beach long, long ago, like in the Everglades. It was another crazy manly canoe trip, and we had... We were sleeping in tents on the beach, and there were these like little tiny bugs that could get through the nets, and they were just biting us the whole night. And when I when we ended the trip and we survived, I had like those those itchy bumps, right? And what do you do when you have those things? Scratch them, right? And what happens if you scratch them too much? What is that? They itch even more. And and you know, itching is not bad. Itching is is one of the ways your body it's a defense mechanism. Your skin's the largest organ that you have on your body. And that organ tells you um, through itching that it needs to be defended, right? But the problem is, is itching kind of feels good, right? And when you see your kid itching something too much, what do you tell them? Yeah, because now they're no longer, now they're no longer using the defense mechanism of scratching. Now they're just doing it because it feels good, because it gives them pleasure. So they're perverting the the original intent of itchiness, right, by trying to draw pleasure out of it. And I think that's kind of like the image here that Paul is going for. In other words, he's saying, and let's put this, let's put this in perspective in terms of Christmas. Buying a gift is not wrong. You know, buying a gift for someone is not wrong. You know, like we saw with, with uh, the love of money is a root of many evils. You know, wealth in and of itself is not bad because of what you can do with it. You can bless people. But what happens, especially in Christmas time, is that we pervert the original intent of things like giving. We pervert giving because then what does Christmas begin to become about? Well, it begins to become about the pleasure that we get from, you know, this buying, etc. You know, this itchiness. And I think that what's interesting about this text in 2 Timothy, and he would be like, if you read through 2 Timothy, you'd be like, what would this ever have to do with something like Christmas? But the, the idea here of false teaching, he's not just talking about a bunch of uh, heretics you know, who are running around you know, denying the Trinity. But false teaching, I mean, it entails all these external aspects of our lives. Because God creates the world good, and he creates the world with pleasure. Pleasure is there for a reason. Right? God created pleasure. He knew exactly what he was doing when he made food delicious and he made marriage awesome. He knew exactly what he was doing. But humans have this tendency, like with the forbidden fruit, to pervert you know, these pleasures. And here we have these individuals with these itch ears. And what do they end up doing? They end up finding for themselves teachers to tell them what they want to hear. Like here I'll think of some of those like prosperity gospel churches. You want me to come up here and tell you that, you, that God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you. He's going to buy you a car. He's going to give you good health. But that's not always going to happen. Become a better you. Right? Um, no, but honestly, but honestly, I mean, you read through the gospel and you're like, whoa, this is pretty hard stuff, right? And I'm even telling you what I see in the Bible. It's not like he's condemning wealth, um, but the tendency that people have. But, you know, people want to hear that stuff because it just makes it easier. So they'll go and they'll find teachers. And trust me, there's a lot of teachers out there who will teach that because, you know, because it's easy. And then you get to be popular and you get to have a good paycheck. So here he's talking about this false teaching. And especially today, in light of American consumerism, I mean, you only got to look at your closet to see how much stuff you don't need. I mean, it really is a sin that we all struggle with. As Americans... You have to understand, we'll be critiqued later on in church history, because we can't really see this, but we have so much, right? But we can't see it, because it's like, it's like you know, telling the fish that he's swimming in water. 
The fish is like, what are you talking about, man? What water? I don't, I don't see any water. I don't feel any water. But, you know, this American consumerism is really beginning to pervert into the false teaching of what Christmas is really supposed to be about. Right? Um, and we're, we're really seeing that because how do we know that we're in Christmas season? I mean, for us Baptists, it's even harder because we're not doing things like Advent. So it's kind of like, well, we know that Christmas season started because the sales are going, right? And it's after Thanksgiving. So here, Paul is teaching against this false teaching. And he's comparing it here to um, an itchiness. He's kind of using here this image of, of uh, a sound. And I think he does that for a reason because the word, I think the word is meant to be proclaimed, right? And we're very verbal creatures. I mean, we're, all, we're always communicating. I was writing this paper, and I was like, wow, you know what's really interesting? All human beings across all societies tell stories. Every single one. There's not one culture, not one civilization that you're going to find that doesn't tell stories. It's absolutely central to being human. Just like communicating, telling stories. We even, when we invent new technologies, do you know what's one of the first things we do with those technologies? We use them to tell the same stories that we've been telling in a new way. So here we have this fascination with, with dialogue, with, ha- with wanting to hear these stories, and then we pervert that, just like you know, Eve perverted uh, the Word of God. And we pervert that by trying to find you know, these teachers that will teach us stuff that will make us feel good about our passion. And in contrast to that, Paul says in verse 4, that what will happen is that those people will turn away from listening to the truth. So he's introducing another category here, truth, and he's contrasting it with something myth. And, and, oh man, I'd be so impressed. Yeah, these are the things that just kind of pop up. But does that word wander look familiar to anyone? Wander, does that bring an image from past sermon maybe? Wandering. The what? The sheep? The wandering sheep? That's good. That's not the one I was thinking of, but that's good. The ship, yes, that's the one I was thinking of. There's that idea that he had all, all throughout First Timothy and some of the other epistles of the ship that's wandering. And one of the roles of, of the pastors are to help steer the ship in the right direction. So he's basically saying they will, they will steer away from truth and wander into this myth. So he now brings us these categories of myth in Christmas. And there's almost like a little bit of a danger with Christmas um, because, because with Christmas we introduce Santa Claus. Right? Now, in and of itself, Santa Claus doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing because, again, as human beings, we are these creatures of story, right? So, you know, Dr. Seuss, you know, whatever. Any of these stories are fine, but, but in the end, what do we know about Santa? Well, we know that Santa's not real. We know that the real reason we're celebrating Christmas is because of Santa. Oh, my gosh. Are any of the kids here? Okay, none of them heard? All right, good. That one's too young to understand yet. Don't listen to me. But in the end... Right? That was, that was, by the way, that was irony. Right? Being cast that. Uh, but in the end, I mean, we know that it's just a story. But the problem is, it's not, the problem is not Santa Claus. If Santa Claus is not coming and ruining Christmas, the problem that ruins Christmas is, this, is more this mentality of consumerism. That Christmas becomes about getting gifts. And not about Jesus. And now, that sounds very generic. Christmas is about Jesus. But, but we're actually going to look at what, what in the world that means. But in reality, we really make this season about gifts and feasting, food, right? And giving and then eating some more, gaining a little weight, then trying to get rid of it next year, right? So now let's go into the fifth verse. Now, now he provides these categories here of, of myths and truth. There's a difference. And you're going to meet people, I mean, I met people in the academic community who are going to make the assumption, oh, dear, the God pie-in-the-sky type thing, that's just another myth. Right? This is a whole other myth, you know, alongside the Easter Bunny and Thor. <laughs> oh, very funny, very witty, right? Because no one's thought about that in the past 2,000 years of church history. Right? But you have this idea here of myth, and Paul is going to make this argument here that he's not talking about a myth here. And he's not just talking about a story, because there, there could even be a difference between myth and story. And he's not even just talking about a story. A story. He's talking about something bigger. And we're going to get to that in the next section. But this is how he ends it. So this section here in chapter 4, this is his charge. And he's charging him to preach the word. We haven't answered what the word is yet. We're going to get to it. But he's charging him to preach the word. And he's portraying this in contrast to what they're falling away from. The itchiness of the ears. The scratching. 
And at the end, he, he reminds them again of the charge. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So he gives them this charge about doing the work of an evangelist. Here we have the word evangel, the gospel, the good news. Be the proclaimer of the good news. And do that by fulfilling your ministry. So now we're going to explore that a little further. But what I wanted you to get out of this here is that we're introduced to these categories of charge, right, and then myth and truth. And now we're going to explore what that truth is. And the way that we're going to explore that is we're going to take a step behind into the preceding passage. So now you can look at verses 16 to 17. One of the, I mean, most, I mean, this was like one of the heralding passages of the Reformation. Okay, very important passage for what, for, what the, for what the Protestant reformers were attempting to do, you know, to liberate uh, the scriptures to their original interpretation. And this, this is how the beginning of verse 16 reads. I think this, and this is one of those texts, like I tell you guys, one of the texts that I meditate the most over is like Genesis 1 to 3. Every single time I ever go back to Genesis 1 to 3, I'm always finding stuff. This is another one of those passages, those texts, where I'm just always going back and saying, oh man, and you're going to see it's so short. But this is how it reads in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And an interesting thing is where we find this section, because most people appeal to this as the authority of Scripture. Or as for the Reformers, they call it sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority. Not the Roman Catholic um, magisterium, but Scripture alone is the authority for the church. And they go to this, but what's interesting is that this passage is wedged within a section, an overall section, that is dealing with false teachers in teaching and in action. So he says here, all scripture is breathed out by God. Does anyone have a different translation? What do you got? Okay, given by the inspiration of God. What else? Anyone else have anything different? What was that? Inspired by God. The King James Version uses inspired. I don't like the word, well, not that I don't like it. I don't think inspired is as accurate because something much deeper is going in here. So an artist sees a beautiful girl and what, what, what happens to him? He gets inspired. And then what does he do? He like paints or he writes or he performs. But there's still, like a, there's still like kind of like a separation. There's almost like this external element. Like he sees her, and he, now he's inspired. So it makes it seem as if Scripture, I'm holding my digital version here, as if Scripture is inspired in that sense. And some people come to the conclusion that what the Bible is, is the Bible is a collection of people who were inspired. Like, wow, man, look how awesome God is. Let me go write about it. Right? And that's, that's what some people, that's what some, uh, some people who, you know, uh, even call themselves Christians will say, like, that's what the Bible is. Yeah, yeah it has all these errors and stuff because it's written uh, by people. But that's not what this text is saying. You know, the word that's being used here is a word that Paul creates. He creates a word here. You can do that. I was writing a paper and I created a word the other day. And I put in the footnote, look, I created this word because I don't think I can, I can find any word. Right? So he creates a word here off of two words, right? The word he creates, yeah, they are news toss, is, is basically, it, it, it's basically the word God and the word breathe, exhale. Exhale. So the translation that I have here says all scripture is breathed out by God because the word literally says, like, God breathed. So, so you ever, like, breathe against a plane of, a, a plane of glass? And, and what do you have? You can visually see the breath. But you have here that scripture is breathed out by God. So returning to our artist, it would, it would be equivalent to saying that she breathed the song out of him. We can't even convey that in, in our mental terms because what does that even look like? We can't, we can't go into somebody else. You, I mean, it's impossible. Not even torture can do this. You cannot go into someone else. Actually, has anyone ever seen uh, the movie... Um, Babe, what was the movie that we were watching? Inception. What's the big deal with Inception? Has that, who's seen Inception? Okay. I'm going to ruin the movie for you. In Inception, they try to plant an idea in someone's mind. 
planted motivation in someone's minds, and the whole point that they're making is that's impossible. But we can't do that. We can't, not even with torture, we can't get into people's minds and put an idea in their mind. We cannot, you know, we, we cannot put that in there. So that, that woman cannot breathe out the song. But what we have here in the text is that Scripture is breathed out by God, ex- exhaled. And the reason we use inspired is because the other words just sound really weird. Okay? Like, you know, if it said, uh, like, exhalated, exhaled. Or really, I think the literal word would be like expired. In, in English, what do we associate expired with? The, the black banana that's been sitting there for way too long. Um, so, so they don't stick that word in there. But it's cool because Paul creates a word, and it's not used anywhere before him in anywhere in the Bible, and it's not used anywhere before him outside of the Bible. So he, he seems it fit to create a word so he can directly tell us what the Bible is, and he says it's breathed out by God. And then this is another really interesting thing. If I try to preach without air, what's going to come out? I mean, nothing will literally come out. You need air to formulate words, right? I mean, there's almost a, there's a multitude of things that are going on. You have like this mental depiction in the third sense, wherever the mind is located in the foot or wherever it's locating, it's basically conveying this message, say this word, and then I use my... my Diaphragm in, in linguistics, we literally have to learn every single part, the gutturals, the dentals, the, it, because all these things happen. Your, your mouth uses your lips, your teeth, the positioning of your tongue on the upper side of your mouth or the lower side. It uses all these things to channel air through your vocal cords to produce sound. But if you, I mean, if you had no air, you couldn't say anything. And, and the Hebrew word for air, for breath, is, is ruach. And, and that's the word for spirit. In Greek and English and Latin, the same word for breath is the same word for spirit. And, I mean, you have this, these images throughout the Bible of the breath of life. So here you have this image that God breathed the scriptures out. And I like to think it in my mind as you have these authors who were writing. I mean, they believed that they were writing. They were not robots. God was not like, beep, 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 you know writing through them like a typewriter, but they were writing these things and they each have their own character in them, but at the same time, it's God's breath, his spirit, that is authoring the scripture. And that was just like the image there I have, is that the word of God here, the Bible, is, is breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's not just a bunch of people who were inspired, like someone's inspired to write a rock song and they wrote about their experiences. No, 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 no. This is the very breath of God, breathed through the pens and the parchments and the papyra of these, of these, um, these New Testament figures. So it's breathed out by God. Okay? And we're going to develop that image in a minute. So the author of the Bible is who? Who's the author of the Bible? I mean, that's kind of like a trick question, honestly. Uh, you know, if you'll talk to some people, you know, I, I studied religious studies and political, political science in undergrad in a secular university, so I heard all of the weird theories that people have, and one of the most academically unfulfilling one is that, like, people just got and wrote the Bible. You know, like, like a bunch of guys got together during the Council of Nicaea, and we're like, hee, 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 let's write the Bible, you know, it's going to cause wars and stuff like that, it's going to do all these crazy bad things. Seriously, go study, go study, just go study. I mean, go to any reputable academic institution and study the Bible, and you're going to see it is the most accurate text in all of antiquities. You have, you have more copies in a closer date to the writing by far than any work by Aristotle, Plato, by any work in all of antiquities. It is the most accurate you know, um, book that we have. We have all these copies and stuff like that. So the, the idea that some guys came together and wrote it is... is I mean, it's like saying, hey, did you know 2 plus 3 equals 7? Uh, well, you've got to go to school. But the reason it's a true question is because, yes, God, God wrote. I mean, it's God's word. But God wrote it through people. I mean, he didn't remove them of their personality or their character. Because when you read John, John is different from when you read Mark. And when you read them over and over and over again, you begin to get this, you know, 
their flavor. You're going to get, you know, their, their, you know, what they're passionate about, how they write. So God writes through them. So the answer is God and man. Right? Which you'd be like, well, how is that even possible? Well, at the same time, you have Jesus, who was God, man, right? in, one, in one person. So the author of the Bible is God. I mean, it has his authority. It has his perfection. And then that leads us to the authority of the Bible. So this is the rest of verse 316. It says, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Profitable. That's that, that fifth word I added to the title because the other four words were really pointing towards the sermon series on the plurality of elders. Right? But, but the reason that the elders are preaching the text is because it's inspired. I mean, it's God-breathed and it's profitable. I mean, it's, it's profitable, it's good for doing all these things. You know, for correcting, for teaching, that's why the office of elder is, chief, is, is chiefly concerned with teaching. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're teaching from the Word. And then the next, the next thing that we'll mention is the armament, what I call the armament, and it's that scripture equips. What's, what's an armory? Yeah, what's an armory? Yeah, it's where you start your arms. So they take their arms off because they've been doing too many pull-ups and push-ups and they leave their arms in this building and then they get them right now. That's not how it works, right? But that's where they keep their arms, you know, their weaponry. I think the reason why they call them arms is because for the soldier, the weapon is supposed to be an extension of his arm. The sword or, or the machine gun is supposed to be an extension of the soldier. He is supposed to be this weapon. So the armament, right? That's right. I watched, I watched uh, you know, a lot of military movies back in the day. Um, so the idea here is that the armament for the church, what the church is supposed to be armed with, is this God-breathed scripture. So now we know what the word, when, when Paul is talking about the word in chapter 4, what we preached right before this, it actually in reality comes right after this. That good word that he's talking about is this God-breathed scripture. And the work of the evangelist that he's talking about is to be equipped with this scripture because, you know, it equips him for every good work. And that's, that's pretty big language. In other words, he's not saying, listen, you need the Bible, but you also need the honorable prophet Leonard Goenaga. No, I mean, I mean, it's not like, yeah, yeah you, need, you, need, you need Leonard to understand the Bible. I mean, like, you got to go through me in order to understand the text. No, no, no. I'm up here teaching the text. But in essence, what are you supposed to do? I mean, hearing a sermon, it goes, it's like this, right? I mean, that, that's how it works. I mean, you're listening, you're seeing with your ears, and then you're reading on a page and saying, hey, Leonard, that's not in there. Because I'm just trying to find things in the text and then show them to you. I was joking around with someone this, uh, someone this morning that I was going to come up here and preach from Dr. Seuss. If I ever did that, you would throw chairs at me and you, and you can walk off. Because the, the only reason that there is authority here is because I'm preaching from a text which has its authority in God. It's breathed out by God. No matter how fast I talk, no matter how much I try to you know, pronunciate, I am not the authority. All I can do is try to clarify and illuminate this text and then the Spirit is going to teach you. The Spirit's the teacher. I'm not the teacher. I am being used by the Spirit to teach. But the Spirit is the one called the teacher. So this, to help you, this, this is how I'm, I'm envisioning it in my mind. Because I want to teach you the authority of the Bible. Because I talked all about teachers, but I didn't really talk about what is taught. And it makes a big difference if when you look at the Bible, what you're seeing is just a collection of stories or a collection of myths. Because then when it says something, you can be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's good advice, but it doesn't really fit for me. That's not how it works because the Bible is God-breathed. So here's the image. The image that I have in my mind, you can go to the next slide, is of an, auto, an autobiography. What is the difference between an autobiography and a biography? And I even get them confused. I had to Google it a couple times when I was writing my paper. But what's the difference between an autobiography and a biography? Okay, which, which is self-written? Autobiography. Very good. And then a biography is what? It's written by someone else. So we got a couple words in there. 
The word autobiography really didn't come out until about the 1800s. But we have three words. So the first word is auto. Let's just see. What do you think that means? Self? What words do we have that have auto in it? Automobile. And why is it, I mean, or automatic. Why is something called automatic? Yeah, because it's self-operating. It runs itself. And now we have the word bio. Bio means what? Yeah, I mean, come on, nurses, like, you really got to get that one. Right? Because you got to study biology. I mean, that's where we get biology, biologos, the study of life. So here we have bios, and then we have graphy, which is what? Yeah, you write with a graphite pencil. Right? You write with graphite. So an autobiography is a self-writing about, about life. And the difference between that and a biography is a biography is... Uh, a book written by someone who isn't the person being described. But they may have done their research. That's how some people see the Bible. They see it as a bunch of different people who wrote about God. Right? And they may have done their research really well, but in the end, it's still just a bunch of people who wrote about God. And that's deserving of a place right alongside the Bhagavad Gita and these other books, if those are also books that people wrote claiming their experiences about God. But the, and, and maybe all those people will say, yeah, well, we were inspired by how awesome Jesus was. So we want to write about him because he was awesome. That's not what, what Paul's telling us here. And this is what he's leaving Timothy with at the end of his life. He's saying, no, 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 no. And, and you're not going to find this word in here, but I use this because I think it's going to help us uh, see, see what um, we're talking about in terms of an autobiography. Instead, what Paul is saying is that this is an autobiography. It is God-breathed. He wrote it. And it's about him. It's a writing. It's literally a writing. Special revelation of writing he gives us that we can read. And it's about what? It's about his life. Yeah, that sounds weird, right? It's about his life. Oh, okay, so so maybe then it's about Jesus' life, right? Because that's what Christmas... I mean, we, we sang the songs about the nativity. The Bible must be about the life of Jesus. Okay, let's put a pause on that, and then we'll return to that in our conclusion. But what we, hear, what we see here in this autobiography concept and a biography concept is the Bible is not a biography. It's not a bunch of books about, uh, about God, but it is, it is God writing about himself, which sounds weird, okay? But we're going to clarify it towards the end. I think you're, you're going to see it, or well, the Spirit will illuminate it to help you understand this concept. But in essence, God gives us this Bible. He is the author. It's authoritative because he's saying it. Right? And, and it arms us for ministry, the work of the evangelist. So that moves us into our final section. I call it the narrative and the nativity. So now we pop up one more section before, and we're in verses 14 to 15. And now we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. It's like, how are we going to get to Christmas studying about the authority of the Bible. Sola Scriptura, right? Well, we're getting there because what are we talking about now? Well, we've talked about the good news. We're talking really about a story. We're talking about you know, the story that it's pointing towards, and you're going to see how we get there. So, verse 14 reads as follows. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how... From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. So I called this section the narrative, the ones who taught and what is taught. So what is this saying here? What you have learned, that's tradition. Right? And, and tradition, the word tradition is kind of like a dirty word. Oh, it could be a dirty word among Protestants because it, may, it, may, it makes you think of what? What will it make? What does it make? Does, does it make you guys think of anything? Yeah, well, catechism, right? Uh, what specifically what catechism? What does tradition make you think of? Authority. I mean, the argument of the Reformation between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics was that the Roman Catholics were claiming two authorities. They were claiming two. The Protestants were saying, no, there's only one authority, and that is, you know, a la 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the word of God. God breathed. Because it said right there in the passage that you will be equipped for every good work. Not just some good works, but for every good work you will be equipped. The Roman Catholic Church was saying, no, 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 you need the Bible and you need 
church tradition. Specifically, you need Roman Catholic church tradition in the form of the, uh, the magisterium, which is when they come together and decide something as being infallible, but specifically as church history uh, continued to progress, and really as it wasn't until the Council of Trent that they said what you really need is you need the Pope and this lineage of popes that's called papal, um, papal succession or apostolic succession. You really need this line of interconnected uh, popes, and they, and, and they tradition, church tradition, has equal authority to the Bible. You can't really understand the Bible unless you have um, unless you have tradition, and that's basically still today the debate uh, between Protestants and Roman Catholics. But this is kind of funny. I thought this was kind of funny because I got I got some really good Roman Catholic friends, and we go and we argue about this for hours, and hours, and hours, and hours. But it's funny because because yes, of course, Protestants accept tradition. They just don't say that it's on par or above. I mean, what's happening right here is tradition. Raising your kids in a church, you teaching them. And what's funny to me is in, in this letter, the last letter that um, Paul is writing, he's talking about tradition. What you have learned. Continue in what you've learned. What you knew from childhood. Does anyone know who that's connected with? Like, who taught him that? Who taught Timothy the stuff from his childhood? It's in the beginning. Well, his grandparent, his grandma, and his mother. That's just kind of funny to me because what Paul is not saying, Paul doesn't go and say, uh, carry on, you know, the, the apostolic succession, popes. Not, that, that is not in the Bible. You will not find papal, you know, you, you will not find the office of papacy, nor will you find apostolic succession in that form in the Bible. You will find apostolic succession, which is the teachings. These are the writings of the apostles. That's apostolic authority, is that we're given the writings. But what's funny is when he does talk about tradition, he's not talking about popes, he's talking about Timothy's grandmother and his mother. I mean, that's tradition. The tradition, and what were they teaching him? They were teaching him the Bible. And that's another funny thing, is we use the word sacred writings, and we mentioned that the scriptures were God-breathed, Right? But picture when Paul's writing, when he says scripture, what is he talking about? He's, he's really talking about the Old Testament. They were, at this time, they were already accepting certain letters from the New Testament as being scripture. Like you can actually read some of, of Paul's letters where he quotes like passages from like Luke and calls them scripture. But this is around like the 60s. So they really haven't solidified. But what is... Go to the next verse. We'll read the next verse and then we'll say this point. 2 Timothy 3.15 Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what was able, what was able to make you wise unto salvation for faith in Christ Jesus? Scripture. And specifically, what does he have in mind here? The Old Testament. And you will not see, in, I mean, at least the way churches practice, you won't see many churches that preach often from the Old Testament. But like, some people may even think like, oh, if you want to lead someone to Christ, you take them to the New Testament, you take them to the Gospel. But he's saying, you no, 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 the Scriptures, and this has implications for everything in the New Testament, that's all included because those are all Scriptures. But what he's saying here is that the Gospel, the good news, which is the Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation, through faith in Christ Jesus, notice, notice what it does not say. It does not say that the, that, the, that the writings are able to teach you how to become saved. How, like what you have to do to become saved. That's not what it says. And Paul goes all throughout the letter to make that point. But salvation is through who? Through faith in who? In Christ Jesus. But at the same time, Paul is not going to surrender the fact that you know, those who are saved have saving to do. I mean, the church is saving. It's redeeming. It's resuscitating. Right? It has a mission that it goes out onto. It has a work. And God is chiefly concerned with your personal behavior because that's all worship. Right? That's how you worship God in your daily behavior. But what we see here is when he's talking about scriptures, he's here talking really about these passages in the Old Testament. And that's not far off from what Jesus himself said. So in terms of sacred writing... John chapter 5, verse 39. Just listen, just listen to this. 
Just listen to me. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you, and he's talking to the Pharisees here, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Okay? So when Jesus is, you know, fighting here with the Pharisees, he makes this crazy, you know, this is a big claim. Think, think about this. You know how sensitive the Jews are. Have you ever walked into a Jewish person's house and seen the two fridges and the two sinks? Have you ever? You never have? If you walk into certain, um, certain type of Jewish people's homes, they will have two sinks, two, two sets of plates, two, um, two refrigerators, because they do not want to eat milk and the meat. They don't want to, because there's this passage about eating, like boiling the lamb in its mother's milk, something like that. And they're so strict that they read that, and they have two refrigerators, just so they can, those two things cannot touch, right? And here he's telling, so that's how strict they are. And remember what they did on Sabbath. What happens if you broke the Sabbath? Oh, man, you're in trouble. I mean, really, you're in trouble. I mean, they even come after Jesus for that. Um, some other figures in the Old Testament. But then he goes and says, oh, that all of that stuff in, the, in, in, in Scripture, in the writings, and he's using here the word graphe, and graphe refers, refers to Holy Scripture. He's saying, all that stuff is about me. Okay, if you were a Pharisee, how would you respond? No, that's not about you, that's about God. And Jesus would probably, like, smirk, you know, and be like, well, duh, yeah, of course, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Um, I mean, that's why, one of the reasons they wanted to kill him. But here he's saying that all of the scriptures is about him. So it's able, the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation, and it's about Jesus, and Jesus is the one who we have faith in to become saved. So now we finally have gotten to the nativity, the narrative. And narrative is basically like the telling of a story. What we basically learned is that the narrative of the, of the Bible... From Genesis to Revelation, the narrative of the Bible is about Jesus, to teach us about Jesus. And now we can finally arrive at the nativity, because what is a nativity? A nativity is the birth of. It's the birthing of. Right? So we know that the story of the whole Bible is about Jesus, but Christmas is specifically about an important part of Jesus' life and his ministry, specifically his birth. So... All, so we acknowledge the authority of the scriptures because it's God-breathed. Then we notice that the scriptures, I mean, we not only talked about their authority, but what they're about, the narrative, and the narrative was about Jesus Christ. And now we can talk about the nativity, and we can close with the nativity, with about Jesus' birth. So Advent has four weeks. You can go, you can go to the image. Um, one of the ways that people celebrate Advent is they'll have a wreath, and with the wreath they'll have these four candles. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. And they light, you know, the, they, the, each candle represents a certain part of the Advent. And, and this is kind of funny. I mean, remember, a, a lot of these things just kind of connect themselves during the sermon process. But um, if I recall correctly, the second week candle focuses on the nativity, on the birth, on the birth of Jesus, Right? So we see what the evangelist's message is about, and I think this is really interesting because at the end of Paul's life, this is how it's framed in my mind. It's not, this is not necessarily what Paul's doing in the text, but in the sermon, this is how I see it. At the end of Paul's life, he's talking about Jesus, right? And, and Jesus and life and salvation and life and nativity and, and Christmas makes us think of beginning. So, so this is the end of Paul's life, and he brings us here to the beginning. And what I'm going to preach on in the end of the month is John. I'm probably going to preach John 1 for my Christmas sermon because I want to connect teaching elders what they're teaching, authority, Bible, and then make our way into um, the nativity and Jesus and Christmas. Okay? So that's one of the things that this sermon is doing. But in John 1... What Paul does is he basically is bringing images of Genesis 1, of creation. So with that, I'm going I'm to want us to read the rest of John. 
because this is what, what I would want you guys to get out of the sermon in terms of autobiography and in terms of Christmas. We got the authority of scripture, we got the importance of this mission, what they're supposed to be teaching, but I want to return to this theme of autobiography because it's, it's, it's not a myth, you know, this narrative of Jesus, it's not a myth, it's not just a story, and it's a true story, which makes it amazing, but it's even bigger than that. And I think I see this in autobiography, but I want to read the rest, or rather the verse that comes right after that. John 5.39 verse that I read. John 5.39 said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So the scriptures bear witness about Jesus, and then this is what he says right after. The writings are about Jesus, and then right after that in verse 40 he says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So these are the, knowledge, the knowledgeable Pharisees who are reading about the Bible. And he says, look, it's about me. But then he associates that with life. So the reason why I found that really interesting is to return to our concept of an autobiography. We could have just stopped by saying, the Bible is an autobiography because it is written by God and it's about himself. And you can even go deeper than that and say, you know, I mean, it's perfectly written. It's a perfect bio autobiography. And you, you can't find a perfect autobiography anywhere because people, uh, you know, they can't remember all their memories. They're imperfect. But this one is a perfect autobiography and it's written by the creator God. That's the author, right? The author of the text is the author of the known universe. And he creates this book, and it's about Jesus. So it must be an autobiography about Jesus, and it must be a perfect autobiography. And we could have stopped there. But how I think this draws us towards the Advent season and towards Christmas is it's an autobiography in a bigger, an even bigger sense. Because that middle word, bios, can take a bigger meaning. And that's what I think Jesus is saying there. It's about Jesus, but it's really about what? It's really about life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is life. What John does in John 1 is brings the images of Genesis 1 because he wants you to be thinking of creation. When you're seeing the baby Jesus there that's going to come in the chapters, right, in the beginning, you're not simply seeing an autobiography of someone who was awesome that was perfectly written and details everything he did perfectly. You are reading about life entering into the world. So it's beautiful for us to see, and I kind of like to think about how this is what celebrating Christmas should be like. It shouldn't be about like simply giving and stuff like that, but it should be like a grandmother. Just to play with the image there of Timothy's grandmother. How can Christmas be like a grandmother? Well, when the grandmother's kids have a kid, there is no way you can explain to someone what having a kid is like. Period. They cannot read books about it and understand. It's like trying to tell someone what, you know, my vodka pizza tastes like, like what my rice and chicken tastes like. I mean, you can't tell someone what food tastes like. Like, you can't communicate to someone the taste of orange. How do you describe orange to someone? How do you describe to someone what something tastes like? How do you describe the color red? Can, you, can anyone here describe red? Exactly, right? So in order to describe red, yeah, and then once that person sees it, you can describe other things like, oh, purple? Purple is kind of like red and, and blue, right? But, but they really have to see it. They really have to taste it. They really have to experience it. So for us, for Christians, Christmas is like a grandma and that first child because the grandma knows everything that's in store for those first-time parents. They know all the blessings but they also know all of the pain and the turmoil and the challenges, but they also know the reward. So that is kind of the spirit of Christmas, that we get to go and return to the nativity, to the baby Jesus, to Mary, right? And what we get to see in there in the manger, as Christians, we get to see what's going to happen. And that is what we're celebrating there. We're, we're celebrating the nativity, the introduction of life, but this life is so much bigger than, you know, this awesome guy who's going to come and, you know, teach people how to see and stuff like that. No, no. This is, you know, the son of God. 
This is the plan that God had for all of eternity to come in here and to save humanity, to bring them true life. And that is why the Bible, I like to think of it, is an autobiography. Because it's God's writing about Jesus, about his life, but about life. So if you can close your eyes and pray with me. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that, that you've provided us with, um, with the scriptures. I mean, you could have... You done a whole number of other ways to teach us about Jesus. I mean, you could have just left it to be word of mouth, some oral tradition. But instead, you decide to give us this magnificently beautiful text that has just this degree of gravity in its ability to pull us towards you and towards your son. And it's not just a book of a bunch of people who were inspired to write about Jesus or their experiences with you, but that you yourself authored it. You breathed it out. You exhaled it. Your breath was present in formulating the words and the vowels and the narrative, Father, and that it's about Jesus, and that Jesus doesn't just come to teach us what we have to do you know, to, to earn merit. It, it's not just a perfectly written rule book, but it is a manual of worship that reveals to us what life is is supposed to look like. And Father, in this Advent season, in this uh, Christmas season, Lord, we get to celebrate the Christ, and in celebrating the baby Jesus, what we're really celebrating is the introduction of saving, redeeming, resuscitating life into humanity. So Father, may that thought carry us forward in these next couple weeks as we enjoy this time of life. In your name, we give thanks. Amen.